thankful that we're together. You can grab your Bibles, go to John chapter 1, Gospel of John chapter 1, page 1220 in the pew Bible there in front of you. Love is Why, part 3. So we're just anticipating our time together in Christmas Eve, and um, we've, we've looked at We've looked at how God has worked miraculously in, in these impractical, unforeseeable, in many times uh, ununderstandable ways in the midst of ordinary people. As we've, we've looked at how God worked in Elizabeth and Zechariah, we looked at how God worked in Mary, and then this morning as we'll discover... Uh, in looking at the life of John the Baptist, it's one of these passages that has maybe as many uh, unpredictable twists as any uh, passage you could possibly imagine. And so we're going to see this morning all of the ways that uh, God uses this life and this example in Scripture to teach us things about ourselves. We say all the time that whenever we open the Bible and begin to read and understand, we not only are learning things about God, but in the midst of learning things about God, we're understanding things about ourselves. And this is a passage of Scripture that it always causes me to say, God, why, why is this in the Bible? Why is this particular story, passage, person. Why is this in the Bible? We, we know because the Bible tells us that if, if God would have recorded all the things that the Lord had done, that wouldn't all the books in the world couldn't contain it, and yet we have these certain things. And it always caused me to wonder, well, why? What is it, Lord, that you're wanting to show us? And then as we dive into it, we begin to see all of these things that God teaches us and how it relates to our present situations and circumstances. All right, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit for help today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this specific word. Thank you for allowing us to know and understand this prophet, this ordinary man. Thank you for all the things it teaches us about you. Thank you for what it will teach us about ourselves. Help us to understand how we relate to you. God, we are grateful to be loved by you. We pray for your power to come into this time and help us to understand clearly. We pray for ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So. Get your listening guides out. Here's where I want to start. True identity is shaped in secret, but it's revealed in public. See, when you become a Christian, you have a new identity, and that new identity has been given to you by God. But the formation of that identity or the understanding of that identity is something that comes in secret, but it will become evident in time in public. And it's important to understand how this works because this is the opposite of the way anything else in the world works, as we'll see in a moment. So John chapter 1, I want to begin in verse 19, verse 19. 
John 1.19. Now this is the testimony of John. Not John the gospel writer or John the apostle. John the Baptist. Not because he was a Baptist, but because he baptized. Okay? And when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him this question, Who are you? So immediately we see why this passage evokes this idea of identity. They want to know, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. They asked, are you a prophet? And he answered, no. Now, I want us to pause for a second and think about why are they asking these questions? Well, these are Jewish religious leaders. All Jews understood what the Bible said multiple places in multiple ways. Here's a reminder from Malachi chapter 4. At the end of the New Testament, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. After this prophecy was 400 years of silence. And so people had been waiting for 400 years, and obviously even before that, but had been waiting in all of human history for this one to come. But these final words were to set this thing in stone. And so people are wondering... When is he coming? And here's what they know, that the Bible says, I will send you Elijah. Now remember when we talked about uh, John's parents and what did the Bible say to them when the angel was telling them that they were going to have a son. Back in Luke chapter 1, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Sound familiar? And he went on to say, and he will go before, and we and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So you see, these things are all coming together. In other words, they're looking for Elijah, even in the prophecy of the, of course, they don't know this, but even in the prophecy of the angel Gabriel, to his parents. And what we're seeing is how this true identity has been formed in secret. In Matthew 17, even, Jesus is going to say, yeah, I have these for you. Uh, His disciples asked Jesus, saying, well, what then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why does this happen? Why are they asking this? And Jesus said, but I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Now, who is Jesus talking about in Matthew 17? He's talking about John the Baptist. He's saying about John the Baptist that Elijah already came. And, of course, the first Elijah, the one in the Old Testament, came. But then this second Elijah, John the Baptist, has come. And, just for clarification, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says about John the Baptist, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women... There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest ever born. That's a big statement. That there's never been anyone born greater than 
John the Baptist. But John had no idea of his greatness. He didn't understand. He, he never heard Jesus say these things. He didn't know. He was, just, he was just doing what he knew to do. He was doing what had been revealed to him divinely through the Holy Spirit in him. He was just walking by faith in situations and circumstances that he had yet to fully even begin to understand. See, if you go back to John 1, verse 22. So they're questioning him. He's answering, no, no, no. So see, he clearly doesn't understand, because, or he would have said, yes, yes. Then in verse 22, then they said to him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. So here's what John does. John compares himself. They're trying to get him to, they're trying to figure out his identity, and they're trying to get him to compare himself to other people. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? John refuses to do that, and what he does is he compares himself to a voice rather than to a person. Now, this is important because what he does is he focuses all the attention exclusively on Christ. Now, we live in a generation at a time where people uh, form their identity literally in public. It's formed, they, they are who they are because of what people see about them, what people think about them, what people uh, say about them, so on and so forth. And so uh, everything is pushed out into the public eye. This is the opposite of that. This is how true identity is formed. Verse 24, now those who were sent from the Pharisees, so here's what they say, Then and they asked him saying, well, when then do you baptize, or why then do you baptize, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, here is an opportunity for John to really make much of himself. Why do you baptize if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, if you're not the Christ? I mean, why do you do this? He could have, he could have pointed to himself here, but instead John answered them saying, verse 26, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you, whom you do not know. See, this is how we know John is speaking by divine revelation. Because he knows that he's here. He knows that he's somewhere around. It is he who coming after me is pre preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. So he says the one, the reason he baptizes, because there's one greater than he could ever be, one whom he's not even worthy to do the most menial of all tasks. So here's what John understands. What's clear is this. John, there's so many things John doesn't understand. We know that by the way he was answering questions. But we also know by the way he answers questions, there's, there's one thing for sure he does understand. He understood the point of his life. He understood his highest function on earth. He understood that it was to point people to Jesus. 
And we need to understand that the point of our life is to point people to Jesus. That's the point of our lives. That's why we exist. That's why you have the job you have. That's why you live in the neighborhood you live in. That's why you uh, cross paths with the people that you cross paths with. Because God has ordained those things because he wants you to function in your most central purpose, which is to point people to him. That everything about you and about what he's done in your life is for you to bear witness, for you to be a walking, living, breathing testimony of his goodness in a lost and dying world. John does get that. Verse 28. So these things were done in the wilderness. What is he doing? Why is he out in the wilderness beyond the Jordan? Why was he baptizing out there? See, John is pointing people to Jesus. He's out where no one else is, and people are coming to him. And believe me, when you read about John's personality, in other words, the angel said he would come in the, in the spirit of Elijah. Well, here's what that means. The spirit of Elijah is you are very cantankerous. That's a good word. Elijah was somebody who didn't hold anything back, who when he preached, it was, uh, it was hard. John comes on the scene, and every time we have record of him preaching, he would open up the service by, good morning, brood of vipers. Glad that you've slithered your nasty, sorry, serpent-like self into my presence. You need to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people were fascinated by him, and they came to him, and he was baptizing tons of people out in the wilderness. And then the next day, John sees Jesus coming towards him, verse 29, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, what an amazing statement he makes. Who takes away the sin of the world. Now, does John fully understand what he just said? No. There's no way he could understand that. He has an idea, but he doesn't understand how this is going to take place. He doesn't, and this becomes clear when we look at his life. But understand something. What John says is, is a prophetic utterance that God gives him, divinely gives him, to speak the gospel. And notice, notice something. In a world, a religious culture that has existed on a sacrificial system, which would cause... Your sins, if you gave a worthy, sufficient sacrifice to be covered up temporarily. And John says that it's the Lamb of God who doesn't cover over, but He takes away. He takes away. And notice He doesn't say He takes away sin for one group of people, but for the whole world. So again, the Jews had no comprehension of this. I mean, they're looking for their Messiah that's going to liberate them, that's going to do all these things that they have. And and the longer they've waited, the more they formed in their own mind their human-centric expectations of what this coming one would do. And so generation after generation, they would, you know, 
they would begin to think about all the ways. And so as things got worse, you know, as the Romans came in and oppressed them, then it became that the Messiah would come and liberate them from Roman oppression. So whatever the situation was over hundreds of years would always be morphed into what this one Messiah would come and do for the Jews. Of course, it was always predicated on what the Jews needed. But what the Jews needed was always predicated on what the Jews thought they needed. Which is never what God's thinking. God's not thinking what we're thinking. Our goal is to try to think what God's thinking. See, we can know something's true without understanding it. That's what I want you to understand. That that all three weeks in this series have taught us that. You can, listen, you don't have to understand something to know that it's true. Because why? Because of who said it. Who says it makes it true? Not your understanding or my understanding. And these things are evident as we think about John. Now, I want you to uh, flip over to John chapter 3. Or I'll put these on the screen for us, okay? We're going to look at, a, at another section of John's life to help us again see the development of his personhood or his identity. In John 3, I want you to look at John 3, beginning in verse 25. So here's another scene in John's life that, again, is very, makes me wonder, God, well, why is this here? What are you trying to show us? Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan To whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So the problem is, is that John has been the most popular religious person of the time. And all these people are flocking to him to get baptized. And now Jesus has come on the scene and people are flocking to Jesus to get baptized. And so John's disciples are confused and perplexed and they come to John and say, hey, we got a problem. You know, we're no longer the, the, the main attraction. There's somebody else that's drawing more attention. And notice what John says in verse 27. He answers them and says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That is an, just an astonishing response. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What is he trying to tell us? Or what's he trying to tell his, his disciples? And what does this mean to us? Well, I, I would put it this way. You can't give me what God has not, and you can't keep me from what God has. See, this is what John's saying. John's saying that all that I've received, I've received from God. So it really never was me. It never was about me. And, and, and this, is, this is showing his, his trust in what he doesn't understand. Because in the midst of his lack of clarity, he knows this to be true. Now, if we could get this concept burrowed deep into our heart, if we could understand that we, that, that, that we can receive nothing, Nothing in this life, nothing in this world, unless it's been given to us from heaven. 
Think of all the things that would change about us. It would, it would eradicate things like jealousy from our lives. Because why would we be jealous if we could receive nothing except it was given to us from heaven? It would eradicate codependency from our lives. Because why would we seek to uh, connect ourselves to, to other people or other things in order to find significance when we would know that whatever we have has been given to us by God, and that's the only way we can have it. It would eradicate complaining. It would eradicate comparison. All of these things would go away if we just understood this simple truth. And here's the thing. We don't even have to understand how it works. We just have to understand that it's true. That it's true. That you can't receive anything unless it's been given to you from heaven. See, why? Why would we, we boast in our giftedness or our accomplishments or anything about us when it had nothing to do with us. Why? When the Bible says we can have nothing unless it's given to us from heaven. All right, I want to look at another scene. Matthew chapter 11, page 1123. You can flip back to Matthew 11. So we see initially in John's life, he's out there as a voice in the wilderness for the one coming. He doesn't understand. He doesn't even understand what his parents were told by uh, the angel, Gabriel. I mean, his parents don't understand, but he doesn't understand what the, what, the, what the angel said about him. So even if his parents said, well, here's what happened, you know, when your mom was 90 and she got pregnant, and here's what the angel said, he doesn't understand. We can tell by the way he interacts with the people who are questioning him about his identity. Then we, we see in scene two when there's, uh, Jesus starts to, to move onto the scene and starts to accomplish things, even though, even though, John said that there's one among, among us who will take away the sin of the world. As Jesus' uh, fame begins to build and his people begin to flock to him and his disciples get confused about that, all John understands is, I don't fully know what's going on. I don't fully know what's going to happen, but here's what I know. Whatever I have has been given to me from heaven. That's the only way I could have it. Then we get to Matthew 11. And so here's what happens to the voice in the wilderness. Verse 2, and when John had heard in prison. Now, I know this isn't new news to most all of you in the room. You know that John ended up in prison. But now let's just remember, this is the one who's been literally, who's been baptizing Hundreds and hundreds of people. He's been preaching and proclaiming the coming one. All of these things. Now, he knows a lot of things are true, but he doesn't understand all this is going to work out. Now, in scene three, he's in prison and he hears about the works of Jesus. And what does he do? Does he say, well... I don't know, but whatever I have, it could only come from heaven. So here I'm sitting here. No, he, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus. Verse 3, and he asked him this question. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? 
Again, every week as we look at these different examples, here's the common thread that we find. In all of them, throughout the Christmas story, are all of these ordinary people that God does extraordinary things in, and they all have doubt. And here's here's the one Jesus said is, there's never been one greater than him born. And he, sitting in prison, hearing about all the things Jesus is doing, sends two of his disciples to ask him, are you the coming one, or do we need to look for another? Now, does he, does he believe that one's coming? Well, absolutely. You can tell by what he says. Does he understand it? Not at all. See, doubt comes in difficult circumstances, doesn't it? See, when things get really hard, when things get really difficult, that's when doubt begins to creep in. See, and, and it comes in difficult circumstances, but what triggers it? In the difficult circumstances, here's what happens. We'll, we start staring at or lingering on our unmet expectations And at the same time, we are ignoring our limited perceptions. See, life gets really difficult. You find yourself in a place you never expected to be. Suddenly, things are, are, are coming apart at the seams. And all of these things that you had hoped, that you wanted, that you even expected to happen, aren't happening. And so you start focusing on these unmet expectations... And in doing so, you turn your eyes away from the reality of, our, of your limited perceptions. Now, here's what we've said over the last couple of weeks. We said that doubt is something that occurs in the context of faith. And I really want you to think this through and understand this. See, when, doubt is a, is a longing to be sure of something that we trust in. That's what doubt is. Whenever you see doubt mentioned in the New Testament, it's always in the context of believers. Do you know that? It's always in the context of believers. That's because you you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You can't doubt something that you don't believe. You You have to be committed to something before you begin to question it. And last week we talked about the difference between doubt and unbelief. Those two things are very different. And the way you know the difference is not in what you're doubting. and It's in what you do about your doubt. I said what you do. That will tell you whether, you're in, uh, whether doubt is, is launching you to faith or doubt is leaving you in unbelief. The Bible holds up doubt as something unique to believers so john says are you the coming one or do we look for another let's think about this for a second notice what john doesn't say he doesn't say are you the coming one or should we stop looking why doesn't he say that because he believes what he believes that one is coming The question is, are you the one? But if you're not, we need to look for another. Which is very different than, are you the one one, or do we need to just quit looking? 
See, sometimes life gets so difficult and so hard and so miserable and even unbearable that doubt starts to creep in. And then what happens? What do we do? See, John, look, John is in prison. The wickedest man on earth, Herod, has him locked up in the most horrific prison that we know lots about. And Luke gives us many more details. But the point is this. He's in the most desperate, terrible situation. He knows that he's going to die there unless something supernatural happens. Because he knows what happens to people that Herod imprisons. He knows how this is going to go down. I find so much inspiration from what John doesn't do. He doesn't ask. He doesn't send his disciples to go find Jesus and ask Jesus to get him out of jail. Wouldn't that have been the most tempting thing to do? Wouldn't it have been easy to just say, well, look, go find Jesus and tell him that I'm in jail in case he forgot that or missed that. So maybe he could like, you know, blow this thing up so I could get out of here. Make me invisible. Do something. But he doesn't do that. Why? Why doesn't he ask him? Because, because think about this. If he is the one, then how ridiculous would it be to tell him what he ought to do? And yet we do it all the time, don't we? We say that our hearts are filled with belief. We bow our head and pray to a God that we believe in and we order him around and we tell him what he ought to do. See, John understands that if he's the one, then he's got the situation under control. You know, I wonder how many of us are sitting here this morning and Man, we feel separated from God because of our circumstances, because of what we're, 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 we're dealing with or we're facing. We feel abandoned or forgotten. We feel frustrated. We feel confused. We feel, we feel tired. We feel worn out. We feel just, just exhausted at the whole thing. We ask all these questions. You know, why did this have to happen? Why am I suffering? Why is it me? Why not? And, we're, and here's what, what, what's happening. See, we're, we're, we, we're, we've lost track of what John said earlier about everything that we have. We've received from heaven. And so we start saying, well, why is this happening to me? Because we're comparing ourselves to other people who deserve it more. Why? I mean, if I'm suffering, they ought to be dead. That's what we think. What about the, then, then we start assigning human agencies to the cause of our suffering. All of which are abandoning what John knows. And that's why John doesn't do any of these things. See, if you really want to know if he's the one, you can tell by the by the way you speak to him, by the things that you say? Or do you just want him to come and meet your requests or your conditions? Are you the coming one, John asks. 
And Jesus, now understand, Jesus said he's the greatest born among women after this moment. That's important. After all of this is over and done with. And Jesus responds here. He doesn't scold him. But he also doesn't say, well, just believe, man. Just believe. See, some of you, you hear this morning when I say, well, you don't have to understand things to know that they're true. And the way you translate that into your suffering and your situation is is that you just need to believe as if somehow that's going to work. I'm just going to believe. I'm just going to make myself believe. I'm just going to... Well, that's not going to work. You don't have the ability or capacity to do that. That's not going to do anything for you but make you even more frustrated than you already are. Jesus, he loves John. And he knows what John's suffering right now. He understands. So he doesn't scold him. Look at verse 4. Jesus answers and says to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. It's interesting. What Jesus does is he says, Now go and tell John... To look back at all that I've done in his past. And then he says, look out at what God's doing around you in the world today. Because Jesus, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus in this very moment having this exact conversation is in the midst of of, uh, causing the blind to see, healing the lame, doing all these things, you know, in this moment. So he says, look back at what I've done in the past. Look out at what I'm doing around you, but look ahead at what's been promised. But but don't look. Don't base your understanding on what your circumstances are trying to convince you of. So the answer that Jesus gives is not only relevant to the context of what Jesus is doing at the moment and has been doing, because remember, the question, what caused John to send these two disciples to go ask Jesus this question in the first place? John, in prison, hearing about the miraculous works of Jesus, right? So Jesus responds and says, the very things that caused you to ask this question if should be the things that you should look at and see that should give you comfort. But also, he's also at the same time quoting Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. So it teaches us a couple things about, about doubt. First of all, this, that doubt is defeated through biblical revelation. See, what Jesus was doing when he answered and said, listen... You go back and tell them, look at what's happening. The blind are seeing. Well, first of all, is there a record in the Old Testament of a blind person being healed to sight? That'd be negative. The only record outside of Jesus doing that would have been the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. In other words, that's exclusive to Christ. And he did that. But I'm saying outside the Gospels. Jesus, listen, these are things that the Bible had prophesied that Someone like John would know it's through, listen, biblical revelation. 
So when you find yourself in doubt, what do you do? What do you do? You read your Bible. Because you need to, when you don't understand what's going on around you, you don't read your Bible so that your Bible will then give you explanation or clarity about your circumstances. You read your Bible to give you clarity and explanation about what you do know is true. What can you know? Because what you need in the midst of doubt is something to know. And the only way to know anything's true is to read the word of the only one who is true. But that's not all Jesus says. Then there's there's another step. In verse 6, he said, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, what in the world is he, he... Why does he remind him of biblical prophecy, point him to two key passages in the book of Isaiah, and then say, so you need to read your Bible. Remember I said, in the midst of doubt, it's how you respond... And so you read your Bible, but then what? Then Jesus tacks on one last thing. And by the way, you're blessed if you're not offended. See, if someone says to you, not to offend you, but what they're about to say is offensive, right? No one would say that unless it was offensive. So Jesus is saying, yes, I know. What you're going to read in the Bible, biblical revelation is what? It's offensive. He knows that. You see, you're going to have people who doubt and then who read the Bible and then get offended by what the Bible says, which is what? Unbelief. Well, I'm just not believing. It happens all over the New Testament. People, people come to Jesus because they're curious or they believe. or whatever. Even, They're even called disciples. And then Jesus speaks and they go, nah, I'm out. Right? Because it's offensive. Because what, they, don't, they, they don't want someone who says the things that he says. So it's not just biblical revelation. But then how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? So doubt is also defeated through joyful submission. You see, when you read the Bible, then you then have to determine, am I going to joyfully submit to this? Because here's what the Bible does. In all of the wonderful things that come from reading the Bible, and I have spent the vast majority of my adult life reading and studying the Bible. I feel like I'm a pretty good authority on this. You know what it doesn't do? It doesn't explain everything to me the way I want it to. It never does. It aggravates the fire out of me. And then I have to joyfully submit to it. That's why Jesus says that. So... So look, here's what happens. They depart, and as they departed, verse 7, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, so there's all these people there. Now they're gone, and he starts talking about John. And he says, well, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's asking them. A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Well, indeed, those who wear soft garments would... Or in a king's house. And what, what, are the, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, 
What were your expectations? That's what he just said. Well, you went out in the wilderness because you had an expectation. You went out to see John because you had an expectation. But when when you got there, it wasn't what you expected. So what did you do? See, you didn't go out there and find a man clothed in nice clothes. No, he looked like a fruitcake. He's out there eating bugs and wearing camel hair. And he's got a big belt around his waist. Which, by the way, came in the spirit and likeness of Elijah. You read about Elijah in the Old Testament. What is it? Say, he's all hairy with a giant belt on. It's the same thing. Expectations. But what did you go out to see? Verse 9, a prophet? Because some of them went out thinking, wait, this is a prophet. Yes, Jesus says to that, I say to you, and more than a prophet. More than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Then he quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So he says, you went out looking for a prophet. Well, you know what? It was more than a prophet. It was the one Malachi 3 spoke about. Assuredly, I say to you, that's when he says, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. The violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I don't know about you, but I just want to draw something to your attention because you might have just missed this. Shouldn't that have been information that Jesus told these two guys to go back and tell John? Like, could John not have benefited highly from knowing this information? In other words, what's about to happen to John? Jesus says, hey, look around. Look at what's going on. Look at what's, what, what I've done in your past. Look at what's going on in the present. Look at what the Bible promises is coming in the future. They leave. It's not going to be long before John's going to face violence and have his head chopped off. And Jesus could have said that to them and said, hey, go tell them. You know, violence is part of the deal. It's always been that part of the deal. It's going to be the part of the deal for you. But he didn't tell them that. Didn't tell him that. He left him operating in his understanding, but in faith, just like he leaves me and you. And so he says, Well, there, there's always been violence. It's always because here's the thing, he's he's getting us to understand this isn't gonna happen the way you think it's gonna happen. You think the Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna he's gonna set up this uh this this powerful army that's going to liberate his people and he's saying no it's the violent that take it by force it's not me it's not what you think you're confused about all this and then he says well he who has ears to hear let him hear well everybody who's standing there has what ears so he's not talking about actual ears he's talking about divine revelation He's saying who who God will open their ears to be able to hear. That's why I pray that for you every single time I stand up here to preach. Because my words won't do anything unless God opens your ears and gives you the ability to hear. 
John never heard these words. John never heard Jesus say, you're the greatest ever born. Prophet? Oh yeah, you're a prophet. You're more than a prophet. Remember they asked him, are you a prophet? He said, no, I'm not a prophet. Are you Elijah? No. And Jesus says, oh, prophet? Yeah, more than a prophet. Greatest who's ever been born. John never heard him say that. Then his head gets chopped off. And about one millisecond after that, he opens his eyes in eternity and the angels say, hey, guess what Jesus just said about you? When the blade came down on his neck, he didn't understand what was going on. But when he opened his eyes in eternity... He understood things he could have never conceived of. Couldn't believe the things that God was up to and the way that God was working. So here you have the servant of God, this faithful man, this this greatest of the great in terrible circumstances, in a terrible situation where the most wicked person on earth seems to be the one in control and command and who's, who's orchestrating all these events. It makes me go back to what Jesus did say to John and think about this again. He said, the blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And it almost seems like if, if, if God doesn't give you ears to hear, then it seems like, wait a minute, you can do all these miraculous things, yet you leave me in prison? But what if God gives you ears to hear? What do you hear? You, 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 you hear those statements and you realize, wait a minute, that's, that's prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, when those things are spoken in chapter 61, the end of that verse says to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. But Jesus left that off. He didn't tell John that part. See, John knows that verse. But Jesus didn't say that. Why is Jesus just playing games with John? Is Jesus trying to make this more difficult than it needs to be? Is this some kind of mind game? What's going on? Why did Jesus stop short and not say to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound? Because John had already been set free. That's why. See, John was set free long before he was ever put in prison. He was already free. Just didn't understand it. See, oftentimes life is not what we expect. It's much harder. It's much harder. And this life is filled with suffering and disappointment and rejection and loneliness and, and hardship of every kind and so many unexpected ways and so many unexpected things. 
And some things we never expect to happen catch us by surprise and devastate us. And some things that are devastating us that we expect to come to an end keep lingering and lingering. And we wonder if they're ever going to end. And everything in between. But you see, at the same time, every time, heaven is not what we expect. It is far, far better. It's far better. And you see... The opening of the prison to those who are bound is not in reference to literal prisons, although God does that. It's the, the prison of this world to the prison of sin. That's what it is. So you just think, wow, there's so many shocking things here. Jesus saying, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, born of a woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But then, you see what he says at the end of that verse? We miss this. He says, But he who is least, verse 11, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He says John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born. Ever. He's more than a prophet. And then in the same breath that Jesus says that, Jesus says, but at the same time, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Wait, what? In other words... All of the prophets, all of the, all of the uh, redemptive history of the world, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all of them, all the prophets, they all came prophesying, uh, proclaiming the king is coming, the king is coming. And, and the Bible holds them up as these great people of faith. And, the, and their job is to proclaim in extraordinarily difficult and hard circumstances, the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. And then John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, comes on the scene. And the reason why he's the greatest of all prophets is because he gets to announce not the king is coming, but the king is here. The king is here. No one else has been able to do that. The only person that gets the, the, the one singular privilege to be able to say the king is here is John the Baptist. He's the only forerunner, the only one. No one else gets that but him. Then Jesus says, as great as that is, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What does that mean? Here's what that means. That means that none of the prophets who came before me, including John the Baptist, in all their greatness, in all their faithfulness, in all their obedience, in all the things that they did, in all the ways that reading their stories inspire us, in all the things, the ways that the, 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 the Bible has, has encapsulated them in their lives to teach us things about God and to understand ourselves and about all of those things. In all of those things, Jesus is saying, they cannot compare to the greatness of what comes after me. Of who comes after me. 
Because even the least who comes after me knows things that all the prophets and John could have never, ever, ever understood. Jesus is saying that these prophets, John the Baptist, what a great privilege they had to announce what was going to happen. But Jesus said that pales in comparison to those who come after I rise from the dead. Believe in me because they get the privilege to announce what has already been done. And let me tell you something about a message. A hopeful message about what might happen. A hopeful message about what you think is going to happen. Even a hopeful message about what you think is, is about to happen. Now, all of those things can be hopeful and powerful. But they're all kind of left out there in hope. And we're really not sure. But when you come and say, hey, we're not, I'm not telling you about something that I hope. I'm telling you about something that's done. I'm telling you about one who's already came. He already lived. He already died. He already defeated sin. He already said, it's finished. It's over. You now are the voice in the wilderness to go out and you get the extraordinary, unbelievable privilege of telling people not about what might happen or could happen or, or even maybe happening now, but what's already finished on their behalf. That's what the, Jesus is saying. Me and you, we can look at John and we can say, wow, look at this great person. Look at this great faith. Look at, look at how God used him. Look at how. And Jesus says, yes, but look in the mirror. Look at what you know compared to what he knew. And realize that if John knew the point of his life, do we know the point of our lives? See, to not be a voice for Jesus is to squander the greatest opportunity in all the universe. In all the universe. In other words, we can get tangled up in so many things about us. We can get distracted by so many things going on around us. We can lose sight so easily, so quickly of the most important thing. But listen, it, listen, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, every single day, understand one thing. From the moment you open your eyes and take your first breath until the moment you close your eyes and go to sleep, your central purpose in this world is to proclaim what Jesus has done in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your misunderstanding, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your hurt, or in the midst of your joy, in the midst of your celebration, that listen, what good is Christmas if we're not telling people what it's about? Jesus has done it. It's completed. What, what thousands of years dreamed about is done. You can have it. You can tell anyone in any situation, in any circumstance, no matter how far they've gone or what they've done, you can have the greatest gift that's ever been given guaranteed because it's accomplished, it's finished, it's done. 
That's our purpose. That's what John teaches us. Well, I don't know where you are this morning. But I don't have to know. I know where you can be in Christ. So if you are in Christ, then I know where you are. You're in the same place I am. Surrounded by a lot of things you don't understand. But driven by a few things you know are true. And above all of them is the reality that it's done. It's done. He's already came. He's already lived. He's already died. He's already defeated sin. He's already slammed open the door to heaven. Have you walked through that door? Are you telling people about that door?